So good morning. Here we are. We're here. It's the 16th of October. Did you know that it is exactly 10 weeks today until Christmas? 10, all right? So you can start the countdown. Now, who feels excited by that? Who feels terrified by that? Who's indifferent at this stage? Indifferent? So a little bit of indifference. Okay, that's fine. We all have a different response. 10 weeks till Christmas. So last week, uh, we had Paul Cargill here with us, and he shared a great message about faith. And if you were here, I'm sure you were really blessed by that. And if you weren't here, then I really want to encourage you to take the time to listen to the podcast if you get an opportunity to do so. It was a great message. And I know it was a great message because I listened to the podcast. I wasn't here last week either, and I was able to catch up with it during the week. And Paul shared from the passage in Hebrews, which says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And Paul made this statement in his message, which I wrote down and then went back and checked that I got it right. And he said this, the foundation stone of a life that pleases God is one that has faith. The foundation stone of a life that pleases God is one that has faith. And I, for one, would like to live a life that is pleasing to God. And I'm sure many of you would agree with that idea. So no matter what is going on around me, no matter what the circumstances are, no matter what loss or victory, no matter what pain or triumph, whatever chaos or peace may be present in my life, the foundation stone of a life that pleases God is one that responds to any of those circumstances or situations with faith. You know, there are many times in our lives where the only thing we can control is our response. When you turn the sound desk on and nothing happens... You can't control that. You can only control how you respond to that situation. The situation may be out of our hands. The timing might be out of our hands. The details may be out of our hands. And all that we're left with is our response. And the Bible tells us that a response that is built on faith is a response that pleases God. Have you ever responded to something the wrong way? Or had someone, yeah, I think think you probably have. Or had someone respond to you in the wrong way? Or at least if not the wrong way, then in an unexpected way. Like sometimes, you know, in a busy family, someone will mishear a question and answer a completely different question to the one that you actually asked. And so the answer you get becomes very confusing. Or when someone tells you something and you think they're joking, like your response can be quite different to what they were expecting to get back. In my career as a high school teacher, I came across plenty of wrong responses in one situation or another, but especially when it came to tests that pupils hadn't prepared for. Some of those responses were quite entertaining. They would just make up an answer and see how they went. A colleague of mine once handed out a test to their class, and one of their students, instead of attempting to answer the questions, proceeded to eat the test paper. (laughs) was not the response that we were expecting. Another colleague of mine very wittily said, well, maybe that's the only way they thought they could pass it. So that was pretty good. <laughs> did I get away with saying that in church? Is that okay? It wasn't, it was, I didn't say it, they said it. So I'm just quoting someone else. But how we respond to our circumstances makes a huge difference in our daily lives because sometimes we can have a response of fear. Some people respond with cynicism. Some people respond with outrage. Sometimes people respond aggressively, and sometimes they respond with indifference. But there is a response that God is looking for from us, 
And that is a response that is built on faith. So I want to spend some time this morning looking at a passage from the Gospel of Luke that powerfully illustrates the different responses that we can have to God. And I'm going to read the entire passage with you together, and then we're going to go into some detail and look at it further. So it's Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this? Who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. It's just an incredible passage of scripture at the end of Luke chapter 7. And throughout it, we see demonstrated a whole range of responses a whole range of reactions to the very same situation. And each of the different people in the story give us a different perspective, a different insight into how we can respond to what Jesus is saying and has done for us and what is happening around us. So the first response is of this Pharisee, Simon. And as I read through the passage, I think the best way to describe Simon's response is skepticism. He appears to be a skeptic. And in the day and age we live in right now, it seems that it's probably much easier to respond to things with skepticism than it is to respond with faith. And Simon here seems to be skeptical of what he is seeing and hearing. Clearly he has heard about Jesus and he's intrigued and interested enough to invite Jesus as a guest into his home for a meal. But as we read through the passage, we discover that Simon didn't actually extend Jesus the common courtesies that were expected in those times. See, when a guest entered the house of a wealthy person, there were usually three things done to welcome that visitor. The first is that the host would place a hand on the guest's shoulder and then give them the kiss of peace, which was normally just a kiss on both cheeks or a holy kiss. We just ask our welcome team to shake hands normally around here. But that's what they would have done, the holy kiss. And it certainly would have been done 
to somebody as a mark of respect if they were an honored guest, such as a rabbi or a teacher. But we learn that Jesus was not welcomed into Simon's house in this way. The second thing that would normally be done is that visitors would have been offered cold water to wash the dust off their feet, because they wore sandals, of course, and Jesus had been walking through the streets of town. But again, we discover that Jesus was not shown that courtesy by Simon. And the third tradition commonly used was to anoint the head of the guest with oil or sometimes a sweet-smelling incense as a way of refreshing and invigorating a traveler, especially if they'd come a long distance. But again, this mark of respect and hospitality was not offered to Jesus by the Pharisee Simon. So he respects or is interested just enough in Jesus to invite him into his home, but then doesn't treat him with the respect or the courtesy that would have been expected or even required, really, when hosting a guest who is as socially important as Jesus was. Simon is behaving in a way that shows he doesn't believe Jesus is worthy of all the attention he's been receiving. He's basically just saying, I am skeptical of this guy. I don't think he is worth all the fuss. I think it's fair to say Simon isn't the last person who has responded to Jesus in this way. And then we read the response Simon has when he witnesses the woman washing the feet of Jesus. Luke 7, uh, verse 39. If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is. Again, the skepticism is just dripping off this. If this man were a prophet... In fact, it's like Simon uses this incident to justify the fact that he hadn't treated Jesus properly as a rabbi. See, if he were a prophet, then he would know what kind of woman she is. If he knew what kind of woman she was, but since he is letting her touch and anoint his feet, then he mustn't know what kind of woman she is. Therefore, he mustn't be a prophet, and therefore, he shouldn't be treated as though he was important. Certainly, there's not a lot of faith in Simon's response. His response is a response of skepticism. Jesus knows Simon's thoughts because, actually, Simon, he is a prophet. Sorry about that. But he tells Simon this story illustrating the nature of forgiveness. There's two people with debts. One is large and one is small. And both debts are forgiven by the moneylender. Which debtor will love him more? And Simon replies, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. I suppose. In other words, I know exactly what you're saying. I know the point you're trying to get across. I understand what you've illustrated here, but I don't really want to agree with you. I don't really want to legitimize what you're saying because I don't believe you're worth all the fuss everybody is making over you. But you've asked me the question, and I don't want to look foolish in front of my friends, so I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. Simon doesn't come across very well in this passage. See, his response of skepticism held him back from being able to receive everything that Jesus had for him. Simon literally had Jesus Christ, the Son of God, right there in his home sharing a meal with him, but he didn't fully welcome him. He didn't fully respect him. He didn't fully receive from him. Simon's expectations on exactly how Jesus should behave and how he should treat others stopped him from believing in who Jesus was. And his skepticism made him reluctant to receive the words that Jesus had to say. There's a warning in there for us. 
Don't let a response of skepticism stop you from hearing God's word for your life. Don't let skepticism choke away the breakthroughs that Jesus has in store for you. So Simon's was a response of skepticism. But the second response that we see in this passage is that of the unnamed woman. Hers was a completely different response. Hers was a response of worship, deep, meaningful, sacrificial worship. Hers was a response of love and gratitude and thanksgiving. But these responses, these outpourings of worship and love were built upon her response of faith. The first thing we learn about this woman is that when she hears that Jesus was going to be at the Pharisee's house, she quickly went there. She starts by intentionally putting herself in position to be near Jesus. This is already a step of faith. She had heard about Jesus. She had heard who he was, what he had done, and so she positioned herself to be near him, to simply be in his presence. Because let's be clear, she was not one of the invited guests to this party. This passage describes her as a sinful woman who had lived a sinful life. Jesus said she had many sins, and the way it's written, scholars believe that, in fact, she probably had lived a life of prostitution. So she wasn't invited to a feast at the house of the Pharisee. She wasn't someone that Simon wanted to be seen hanging out with. But the customs of the day allowed poor and needy people to attend feasts such as these. They didn't get a seat at the table, of course, but they were allowed to wait on the fringes around the outside of the banquet table in order to get any of the leftover food or scraps, but also so that they could overhear some of the teaching and words of wisdom from the Pharisees and the rabbis and the other leaders who were at the feast. So that's how she got there. And verse 37 tells us that when the woman learned that Jesus was eating there, she made her way to the Pharisee's house. She didn't just happen to be there. It wasn't a fortunate circumstance. She wasn't there because she was hoping for some leftover food. She wasn't already there necessarily when Jesus was coming. She had taken a step of faith. She was there because she knew that Jesus was there. She dropped whatever else she was doing and did everything she could to get to the place where Jesus was. I think that's a good place to start for all of us, isn't it? In order to respond to God in faith, first position yourself in his presence. Make a choice to set aside the time to be near him, to hear from him, and to worship him. That's just the first part of her response, getting there. And the second part of her response comes when she comes into the presence of Jesus. Verse 38, as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. This is a response of love, a response of worship, a response of gratitude. She's already made the effort to get there. In faith, she has intentionally made her way into the presence of Jesus. And when she comes near to him, she is so overwhelmed by gratitude and love for him that she begins to weep. As far as we know, at this point, Jesus has done nothing and said nothing to her. This is simply her response to being in his presence. What a contrast to the response of Simon. 
Jesus later reveals that her tears are tears of love and gratitude, that she loves much because she's been forgiven much. See, she has such faith and confidence in Jesus that she cannot help but pour out her love and thankfulness even before Jesus has told her that she is forgiven. Giving thanks is a response of faith. We've done it in our worship this morning. And Jesus modeled this for us several times. He gave thanks before the miracle of the feeding of the 4,000. He gave thanks before the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. He gave thanks to God the Father before Lazarus was raised from the dead. Giving thanks is a response of faith. There's a well-known verse in 1 Thessalonians that says, Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Give thanks in all circumstances, but not for all circumstances. And that is what this woman is doing. She's responding in faith by pouring out her love, pouring out her worship, pouring out her thanksgiving, even though, as far as we know, her circumstances haven't changed at all. In faith, she is giving thanks to Jesus. So by faith, she positioned herself in his presence, and by faith, she gave thanks and worshipped him. The third element we see in this woman's response is her humility. See, in Simon's response, we see pride and arrogance, and in this woman's response, we see humble acts of service. She took on the host's task of washing his feet. Even that on its own is a humble act of service, placing Jesus' needs above her own, but it was so much more than that. To stand weeping in public and then to kneel down and wash his feet with her tears and to dry them with her hair. She's given up all sense of pride. There's no hint of selfishness. There's a real sense here that she's abandoned all thought of everyone else around her, and she has fixed her eyes on Jesus, thinking only of him. She humbled herself. She set aside her pride. She brought herself low so that he would be glorified. That's a response of worship. It's a response of humility, and it's a response of love. In fact, it goes even a little deeper than that in terms of what she set aside. See, traditionally, Jewish women had their hair bound up and would never appear publicly with their hair let down. It was considered immodest to do that. And so for this woman to unbind her hair and use it to dry the feet of Jesus was to say that she didn't care what anyone else would say. She didn't care what judgments or criticisms or consequences would come from her actions. She was putting all her trust and faith and confidence in the one who had forgiven her much and who she loved much. So by faith, she positioned herself in the presence of Jesus. By faith, she gave thanks and worshipped him. And by faith, she humbled herself in front of others in order to give all glory to him. And then the fourth thing we see in this woman's response is that it cost her something valuable. The alabaster jar of perfume. Obviously, we don't know the exact size or value of her particular jar of perfume, but we do know that alabaster jars were made from a precious kind of stone that was similar to marble, and that the jars themselves were expensive to own. 
So it was far more usual for expensive ointments and perfumes to be kept in expensive containers. We also know that the way these jars were sealed meant that you actually had to break open the top of the jar in order to get the contents out. It couldn't be sealed again. They didn't have screw tops or glad wrap or anything like that. So when this woman poured out the perfume on Jesus' feet, she would have used all of it. The expensive jar and the expensive perfume couldn't be used again. She gave it all in worship to Jesus. By faith, she sacrificially gave what she had in order to show her love, her gratitude, and her trust in Jesus. I like, too, the fact that it says when she heard Jesus was there, she came with the alabaster jar. It wasn't something she happened to have on her. She prepared, she decided that she was going to give this to him. You know, in these few verses, this woman paints a wonderful picture of how we can respond to God. She responded with worship. She responded with love. She responded with faith. By faith, she positioned herself in the presence of Jesus. By faith, she gave thanks and worshipped him. By faith, she humbled herself in front of others. And by faith, she sacrificially gave of what she had. So we see the response of Simon, and we see the very contrasting response of this woman. But there are two other responses that we see in this passage. Verses 48 and 49. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? See, Jesus wasn't Simon's only guest at the table. There who were his other friends and colleagues. They're not mentioned by name, but scholars believe they are very likely to be other Pharisees and social and religious leaders from the town. And they too are witnesses of all that has been happening in this exchange. And their response is, who is this who even forgives sins? And from the context and the way it's written and from other passages in the Gospels, we know that this is not a polite query or wondering. This is a response of judgment and maybe even outrage. Who is this who even forgives sins? Because this is a point of contention right throughout the Gospels. This is what frequently got the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day so upset with Jesus. How dare he say such a thing? No man has a right to say that. Only God can forgive sins. To claim to be able to forgive sins is to claim that you are God, which is, of course, what Jesus was doing. And I think this is the part of the story that amazes me the most because we see two completely different responses to the very same statement. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And for the woman, this statement brought life it brought freedom, it brought joy, it brought complete breakthrough in her life, and it brought rushing out of her an overwhelming response of worship and of love. But for the other guests, the very same statement, your sins are forgiven, brought anger and criticism. It brought bondage and imprisonment to their own thinking. And whether it was out of their skepticism, their pride, or their judgment, they were unable to accept the freedom that Jesus was offering simply because they had the wrong response to what he said. And finally, the, the fourth response that we see in this passage is the response of Jesus. His is a response of compassion. His is a response of mercy and grace. 
This woman viewed by, viewed by everyone else as a sinner. This kind of woman and a disgrace. The same woman Jesus views as forgiven and loved. Jesus views as redeemed and restored. Jesus views her as adopted into the family of God. Her response of faith didn't necessarily change her circumstances. We actually don't know what happens to her after she leaves this room. But it changed her status. It changed her position. It changed her standing with God through what Jesus did for her. Verse 50, Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. She came in as a sinful woman, but her response of faith to what Jesus offered her has saved her, and she left in peace. Team, can I have you come and join me again? We're going to sing again. In a moment, we're going to go back into a time of worship. We're going to sing a, a beautiful song together called Nothing Else. And in this moment, we have an opportunity to respond. We have an opportunity to position ourselves in the presence of God. We have an opportunity to give thanks to the one who has given us everything. We have an opportunity to humble ourselves and to fix our eyes only on Jesus, to respond to him by putting all our faith, trust, and hope in him. I don't know what circumstances might be in your life right now. I don't know what situations you might be facing, what crises you might be going through, what decisions you have to make. It may be very natural for you to respond to some of these situations with worry or with anxiety, with fear. Maybe there are some that make you respond with outrage or skepticism or cynicism. Maybe your response has been indifference or anger or doubt. But we have an opportunity as we worship to choose to bring a response of faith. Just like the woman in this story, no matter our background, no matter our past, no matter what situations we're facing right now, when we turn to Jesus in faith, he responds to us with mercy, with grace, with love, with forgiveness. Jesus sees you as forgiven. Jesus sees you as redeemed. Jesus sees you as loved. Jesus sees you as restored. And because of what he did for us on the cross, he sees you as adopted, as a child of God. And all he asks is that we respond to him with faith. Would you stand with me if you're able? I'd just like to pray before we worship together. Thank you, Lord God. Praise you, God. Lord, we thank you for your gifts of mercy, for your gift of grace for your unfailing love, for the hope we have in you. And Jesus, we thank you for the gift of salvation. That all we need to do is to put our faith, our trust, our confidence in you, and you can restore right relationship between us and the Father. We thank you that through your blood we are redeemed. And this morning, Lord, again, as we come to worship you. We lift up our hearts in faith to you. We choose to respond in faith. We choose to fix our eyes on Jesus over every situation. We choose to fix our eyes on Jesus over every opinion of anyone else. 
We choose to fix our eyes on Jesus over every difficulty, over everything that might bring fear or confusion or anxiety. And we cast aside the response of skepticism and cynicism and again say, Jesus, we trust you with our lives. We trust you with our eternity. And we give you thanks and love and praise and worship for all that you've done for us. Praise you, Lord. Thank you.